Having said that, we're going to look at the first 28 verses of the 18th Psalm, and we're going to preach through each one of these verses. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to read the superscript, those cap letter words there right after the designation 18, and then verses 1 through 6. But we'll walk through all 28 verses uh, as we go through the sermon itself. So let me read for you now, brothers and sisters. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord, so let's listen to it and receive it as such, as we find it in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul, he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that your word is perfect and sure, and right, and pure, and true, and righteous altogether. Indeed, to us, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and it is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And so we pray now that your Spirit would use your Word to revive our souls and make us wise and rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. To the end that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we turn now to Psalm 18, uh, it's a fascinating psalm for a couple of reasons. And there's too many reasons for me to get into, but there's two important ones that I want to point out. First of all, unlike many of the Psalms in the Psalter, we're given a a superscript. And the superscript are those all cap letters um, that you see there after the designation 18. And what the superscript often tells us, by the way, that's part of the original Hebrew text. That's part of the inspired text. Unlike the title above it, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. That's not a part of the, the, the inspired text. But the to the choir master is. And oftentimes the superscript will give us the historical context in which a psalm is written. And so let's look at the superscript to, together to be given that context. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So it's written by David. The servant of the Lord who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. So the context here is is a, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It's a victory psalm. 
in which David has been delivered from the hands of all of his enemies, Saul in particular, who was pursuing his life. And so what that tells us is this is a a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise, a psalm of gratitude. And I find that interesting because here's another unique fact about this psalm. It is almost in its entirety, with a few minor changes, recorded elsewhere in the Old Testament. If you turn in your Bibles back to 2 Samuel 22, turn with me to 2 Samuel 22, you'll see that this entire psalm is, again, with a few variations, recorded for us again. And I'm not going to take the time to read through that, obviously, but I want you to see where this This song of deliverance is situated. It's obviously situated after uh, chapter 21, where David um, is conquering his enemies. He conquers, finally, the Philistines, these warring nations that are against him. And so then this song of deliverance is chapter 22. And then look at chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. What do you notice there? These are the last words of David. So we're given the historical context that this is a song, a psalm, that David wrote as he was in his final days. Now I find that interesting because this is a psalm of thanksgiving. And if you've walked someone through the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, if you've been alongside of them in their final days, those can be some dark days. If you're a Christian, yes, you're looking forward to the fact that you will be at home with the Lord, but you're also looking at your loved ones your family members, watching them mourn, understanding that they're now going to live the rest of their days living in light of your absence, you not being there. And so there's a weightiness to this. And yet here is David thanking God, gushing affectionately for all that God has done for him. And so the question that I automatically want to ask then is, well, how do we then as God's people nurture and foster this kind of thanksgiving in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of joy, in the midst of good times, but yet also in the face of impending death. Why do I ask that question? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.18 commands us, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So it's the will of God that we be thankful. So how do we nurture this kind of thankfulness? How do we cultivate a heart that is given to thankfulness? And I think this psalm instructs us in six different ways. We're not going to look at those six different ways. You already know what I'm going to do. I love the number three. So we're going to hack those six points in half and look at the first three truths that we need to remember this week. And next week, we'll look at the other three truths that we need to remember so that we can cultivate a thankful heart. And what are those three truths? First of all, we need to remember our delight. We're going to see that in the superscript of Psalm 18 and the first three verses, the fact that we need to remember our triune God is our great delight. And then second of all, we need to remember our deliverance in verses 4 through 19. We need to remember the deliverances that God has brought into our lives. And we'll see what that looks like. And then thirdly, we need to remember our righteousness. And we'll look at that in verses 20 through 28. And I'm not going to explain that one for for you right now. I want that to be a bit of a cliffhanger so that you really pay attention as we're walking through the rest, rest of this text. But I like the number three so much 
and I want to complicate my outline. No, I actually think this is really helpful. With each one of these points, there's going to be three sub-points. We're going to look at this psalm first as it finds voice in the life of David, then as it finds voice in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then lastly, how it's to find voice in your life and my life as those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and members of the new covenant. Make sense? Three points, three points underneath each one of those points. And my hope is that this will engender great thankfulness in our hearts before the God who has so mightily and graciously saved us. So let's look first then at how we are to remember our delight in order to foster thankfulness. To the choir master, a psalm of David. So David, God's covenant king, the one that God graciously chose to rule and reign over his people Israel, is the one who wrote this psalm. And he acknowledges he is a servant of the Lord. Who is the Lord? Yahweh. The God who has revealed himself back in Exodus chapter 3 with this very name. He is the God who has graciously entered into covenant with his people. And it is this Lord that David serves. And he addressed these words, the words of this song, to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. It's It's a very jarring start to this psalm, isn't it? It's right out of the gate. I love you, O Lord. It's just this exclamation. And it's even more shocking or jarring in the original Hebrew, scholars tell us, because this word love that David uses in the Hebrew carries with it this idea of an affectionate, strong love or emotion that a child, a parent has for their child or that a spouse has for their husband and wife. It's this gushing, affectionate love. And David's heart is filled with this kind of affection and passion for the Lord. Why? Well, first of all, because the Lord's graciously entered into this covenant with him, made him the king over his people Israel. But he goes on to say, you are my strength. And then look in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. David is just piling up this military language, right? Because this is a victory psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And he's saying, the Lord has been all of these things for me as I've gone to battle against my enemies, against the enemies of the people of God, against my enemies. He's been my strength. The reason I've been able to be victorious in battle, yes, I had to take up my sword and arms, but it's because the Lord was my strength. And then when I needed a place to hide, David picks up all this defensive language. He says, the Lord was a rock for me when I had to retreat from my enemies, which we saw happen again and again in David's life. And he's been a fortress when my enemies came against me and I needed to be able to to defend myself and attack them. Lord, you were my fortress. And at the end of the day, you are my deliverer. You are the one who has protected me. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. So there's this defensive military language, but then there's also this offensive military language in the second half of verse 2. He says, my shield, now notice this language, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now when you hear horn of salvation, it's kind of a weird thing to us. But see, in the ancient world, when they thought of a horn of salvation, they thought of this powerful weapon that that animals had. Think of a rhinoceros. It's the easiest one I could think of. 
Think of a rhinoceros. This thing can run really fast. It has, it's huge. It weighs a ton, bunch of muscle. And what does it do when it has an enemy that it wants to plow over? It runs as fast as it can, sticks that horn out there, and all that force, all that weight, all that muscle is pushing that very fine point of that horn into whatever it's trying to attack and destroys its enemy. And David is saying, the Lord has not just been my sure defense, but he has also been my strong offense. He's been my horn of salvation, my stronghold. And of course, by referencing the Lord as a shield here, there echoes back to what the Lord promises Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, he comes to Abraham and says, I am your reward and your shield. And David's saying, I'm in that long covenant line. And this covenant God is the one who protects me, who has called me to himself, and who, who goes to battle for me. And so because of that, look at verse 3. He says, I call upon Yahweh. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So then he goes, not just what, I'm thankful to God and I call upon him. I worship him. I pray to him. Not just because of what he's done for me, but because of who he is. In and of himself, he is worthy of praise because of his character. Because he's eternal and holy and righteous and good and wise and full of wrath and all of these descriptions that you can think of. He's worthy to be praised. And when I call on him, when I worship him, he saves me from my enemies. So what we see is David just gushing, delighting in the Lord for all that he's done for him and for who he is. We, we see this. In the life of David, again and again, this is why he's the man after God's own heart. And we also see him doing this on his deathbed here in Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22. So we've heard that that portion of the psalm in David's mouth and in his life. What about in the life of Christ? Well, we know, obviously, that the Son, since eternity past, has delighted in the Father, hasn't he? The Son, the second person of the Trinity, along with the Spirit and the Father, has no beginning and He has no end. And in eternity past, what were the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing? They were delighting in communion with one another. They had no need. They weren't needy. That's not why they created you and all things. It was for His own glory. But from eternity past, the Son has been delighting in the Father. And so when we hear, I love you, O Lord, my strength, we are to hear this in the voice of the Son and in the voice of the Son after he assumed a human nature, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear this psalm in his voice. And so we see this all throughout Jesus' ministry, don't we? We see it particularly in the Gospel of John. If you look at John chapter 4, verse 34, you don't have to turn there. Just let me give you the context. Jesus is at, at the, the well the, with the Samaritan woman, excuse me, yeah, the woman at the well. And his disciples come back and they say, we've got food for you. Do you remember Jesus' response? He says, I've got food that you're not even aware of. And then he goes on to say what? It is, it is my food to do my Father's will. In other words, doing my Father's will is more important than my physical needs. And so that, and now why is that? Why is Jesus is doing the Father's will more important to him than physical food because he delights in the Father. He loves the Father. He has strong affection for the Father. And we see this again in John 14, 31. 
He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? Why does he do in his entire life all that the Father has commanded him? So that the world may know that I love the Father. It was Jesus' passion that the world would see his great love and delight in the Father through his earthly life and ministry. But more than that, the Father was also all these things for Jesus that he was for David. So when we look at the descriptions of him being his strength and his rock and his fortress, his sure defense and his sure strong offense, all of these things the Father was for Jesus in his earthly ministry according to his human nature. The Father was all of these things for the Son who assumed a human nature. And if you're like, I don't see where that is in the text. Well, let me give you a little note that you can jot down and look out later because we just don't have time to do it. But part of the book of Hebrews that we've already covered, chapter 2 and verse 13, picks up Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, and applies it to Jesus. I will trust in him or I will hope in him. And so according to the author of the book of Hebrews, this psalm does find its voice in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's crying out to the Father to be his rock and his refuge, his shield and his stronghold. And as a result of that, we see Jesus in his earthly ministry crying out to the Father like David is crying out to Yahweh here. We know from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, that is, after the Son assumed a human nature, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So think about this. This is not just true in Jesus' entire life which right we see him in his earthly ministry retiring from the crowds, retiring from the disciples so that he can pray. But we see it most acutely in Gethsemane and in the trials and as he's dying on the cross, right? He goes and retreats from the disciples three times in Gethsemane and says, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. And yet if it is your will that this happened, not my will, not my human will, but your will be done. The divine will be done. And then we see him on the cross crying out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out to the Father. Why? Because he loves the Father. He knows the Father's worthy to be praised. And so we see this this psalm finding voice in the life and ministry of Jesus. So how does it apply then to us? We've seen it in the mouth of David and Jesus Christ himself. Now how about us? How do we sing this psalm? in response to what it teaches us. Well, first of all, we are to delight in our triune God. It's our great privilege to do that. That's the privilege we lost, forfeited by sin in the garden, and it has now been restored to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should delight in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of your being. Love your triune God. And then we're commanded and told that we will love the individual persons of the Trinity. 1 John 4.19 says, We love the Father, speaking of the Father, why? Because He first loved us. He elected us in the Son. And so because of that electing love, we love Him in response. And the same thing is said of the Son. Peter 
writes to his audience in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. You love the Son, though you do not see him. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. It is our great privilege to delight in our triune God. And we're also privileged to look to God as our strength. Right? We're, we're told to look to the Father as our strength in Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And we're commanded to look to the Son and the Holy Spirit as our strength as well, aren't we? You remember Jesus says to his disciples in John 14.16 that he is going to send them another comforter. What's he telling them? He's saying, I've been your comforter, but I'm going to go. I'm going to disappear into the heavens and intercede for you at the right hand of the Father. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be your comforter. And what does comfort mean? Literally, with strength. And so the Holy Spirit is sent to give us strength to do all that God has commanded us to do. And so we're to look to him to be our strength. In all that we do in the Christian life, the battles that we have to fight, the covenant faithfulness with which we walk with God, He graciously is our strength. He's also our horn of salvation. He's our strong offense. Where has the Father wielded most effectively the weapon of our salvation? At the cross. At the cross. And what's the proof for that? You remember in Zechariah's prophecy, the song that Zechariah sings in Luke chapter 1, he says of Jesus, the Messiah that was promised, that God has now provided, he says that God has raised up, now listen to this verbiage, a horn of salvation. Same phrase, horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, a sure reference to Psalm 18 here. Jesus is that horn of salvation, and he has conquered all of our enemies on the cross. That's why he says what? It is finished. He is our horn of salvation. And so as a result of these things, these realities, we should call out to the Lord in prayer. It's our privilege to be able to, as we heard last week, approach the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence to call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And this is picked up again and again in the New Testament, isn't it? We're commanded in Philippians 4.16, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And again, in 1 Peter 5.7, we're commanded what? To cast all our cares on God, on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. So brothers and sisters, let us, let us draw near to the Lord in prayer and, and delight in him in prayer and remember who he is. That's what we see David doing here on his deathbed. That's what we see Christ doing all throughout his earthly ministry, particularly on the cross and in Gethsemane. And that's what we have the privilege of doing as well, delighting in our triune God. And that will foster in us what? Thanksgiving and gratitude to him. So now that we've seen how we need to remember our delight to cultivate thankfulness, let's look secondly at how we are to remember our deliverances. Look at verse 4 with me there. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. 
The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, in remembering these deliverances, David first remembers how he felt in the midst of his enemies. And you can think about David singing this in in multiple contexts throughout his life. He may have had um, some fear as he was facing Goliath, we can imagine. Yes, he goes forth with great boldness, but then you stand close to that guy and it's like, whoa, this guy's huge. What am I going to, I don't have any armor. I've just got a slingshot here. Uh, We can imagine him feeling this way as Saul uh, multiple times has gotten really close to killing David. We can imagine he feels this way when Absalom is pursuing him. And any of these other warring nations that he's gone to battle with, David's saying it feels like death is so close that I'm like bumping into it. And it's like a snake that's coiling itself around me and it's getting more and more constricted and I'm feeling like I'm about to suffocate, like I'm about to die. That's how close death felt to David during this period of his life. And yet in the midst of that, what does he do? Look at verse 6. He cries out to the Lord, in my distress... I called upon Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. To my God, I cried for help. And, and as David did that, even as the Israelites did while they were in captivity under Egypt, what is the Lord's response? He, his covenant people cry out to him, and from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. God is seated in the heavenlies. His, his temple is high and lifted up. And yet he is near to the heart and the suffering and the concerns of his people. And so when they cry, he hears and he responds. Now what's fascinating here is to look at God's response in verses 7 through 15. And I want you to, as I read this to you, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want you to ask yourself this question as I'm reading this to you. When did this ever happen in the life of David? When were there ever these sorts of physical manifestations in David's life? Think of everything that you know about David from 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and ask yourself, when did this happen to David? Verse 7, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So again, I return back to the question, when did that happen in the life of David? These sorts of physical manifestations that he records here. Well, let me help you out. Those things didn't happen as described in the life of David in these physical ways that you could see them with your eyes. What David is doing here is he's using poetic language picked up from the time of the Exodus, when God delivered his people from their captivity in Egypt, led them out through Moses, led them through the Red Sea, and then also the military conquest under Joshua. 
He's picking up all of this language of peals of thunder and lightning and and the foundations of the earth being exposed and, and waters being pulled back. All of this, if you know your Old Testament, is meant to drive you back to those instances when the Lord heard the cries of his people and delivered them. And so what is David saying here then? He's saying that same covenant God that delivered his people when he heard their cries out of their captivity in Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh and crushed Pharaoh and his army through the crossing of the Red Sea. That same God who led Joshua and was covenantally faithful to him and allowing the people to crush their enemies, that same God showed up when I was at battle with my enemies. In my life and in my service to Israel, This same God has been faithful to the covenant. He was faithful to the covenant with them, and he was faithful to the covenant with me. And so in a very real sense, David is saying, I'm like a second Moses. And you say, wait a minute, where's the proof of that? Look at verse 16. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Anybody remember what Moses' name means? Drawn out of water, right? You remember Moses is sent down the river in a, in a basket made of reeds because um, Pharaoh had commanded that they kill all the baby boys and God's people, when the government says diso- disobey God's law, we say no, we will not do that. And so when he got older, he was sent down the river and who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. She pulls him out of the Nile River and what does she say? I'm gonna name him Moses because we drew him from the water. And David's saying, I'm like a second Moses. I'm leading the people of God in conquest. He's keeping his covenant promises through me and through my leadership, even as he did through Moses. And so he's remembering that the Lord delivers his people through the destruction of their enemies, as he's always done. And so David then rejoices in this rescue. Look at verse 17. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. There was no way that I could overcome them, and so the Lord did it for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted me. Note that language, he brought me out into a broad place. You remember back in verses 4 and 5, he's saying, I'm feeling confined and constricted by death nipping at my heels, and I feel suffocated, but now it's like I'm, I've been brought into an open place. You ever been on a plane for too long or in some confined space, and you don't even feel like you can breathe, and then you get into an open space, and it's like, oh, yes. That's the kind of imagery that David is using here. The Lord has rescued me. He's brought me out into an open, broad place, and so I'm no longer trapped. I'm no longer restrained or oppressed. The Lord has crushed my enemies and rescued me. So we see David remembering the deliverances that God brought about in his life. And we see this psalm picked up by Jesus, right? Because Jesus, think about how he was entangled, he himself, by the cords of death. He was constantly pursued by his enemies all throughout his earthly ministry. And the only reason he was able to get away was because it wasn't his time yet. But think about him at Gethsemane. Think about him in the trial. Think about him on the cross, death is, is wrapping itself around him through the enemies of Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Jews who hated him and the Roman soldiers who will eventually crucify him and Satan and his demons himself. Think of his sufferings. Think of his beatings. Think of his scourging. Think of the, the, the spitting. They spit upon him. They mocked him. 
This is what happened to Jesus. But here's what's different. David's delivered from his enemies and from death. And yet Jesus is given over to it, isn't he? It seems like his enemies win, right? But Jesus says, no, no, no. When you see me dying at the hands of my enemies, don't think that that's what's happening. They're not getting the victory. They're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. He says, I could call down legions of angels as he's on the cross, and they could deliver me, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my Father's will. So what's going on here? Why was Jesus delivered over to his enemies like this? Well, see, what's happening is Jesus is tasting death for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is taking the curse, becoming sin for us because we deserve the wrath of Almighty God poured out on us for our rebellion against Him. And what's fascinating is when Jesus dies and He says it's finished, do you remember what happens in Matthew 27? The sky goes dark, there's an earthquake. These are all echoes of language from Psalm 18 and from the Exodus and from the Old Testament. And so what's happening? The wrath of God is being poured out on His own Son. His Son is being our substitute and being treated as God's enemy and His just hand is crushing His own Son for us. That's what we're being told. He's not delivered then. He's delivered up to his enemies and dies in the wrath of God for us. But he doesn't stay dead in the grave, does he? He's resurrected the third day. And then he, he speaks and teaches his disciples for 40 days. And then he ascends to the Father's right hand. And then he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In keeping with all the old covenant promises that the Messiah would pour out the Spirit on all flesh. And what is all of this telling us? It's telling us that the Father has reversed the condemnation, the curse that was upon the Son, because He was just bearing that for us. He didn't deserve that in and of Himself. And so all of it, the resurrection, the ascension, the pouring of the Spirit, and His second coming, it's all a stamp of approval from the Father. I approve of what my Son has done. I accept your work on their behalf, my Son. I am well pleased with all that you've done for them. And of course, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back again. But we see Jesus delivered. We see David delivered. And what about us? How does this psalm find voice in our life? Well, we know, brothers and sisters, that that we've been delivered by Jesus, right? We've been delivered from the flesh, the world, and the devil, and yet we still struggle against them, don't we? We still struggle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. And then as human beings, we suffer loss, sickness, death, And we're going to be persecuted for Jesus' sake. He says that. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted the teacher or the master, they're certainly going to persecute the student or the servant. And so we know that we have enemies. We're thankful that God is no longer our enemy. That's the ultimate deliverance that Jesus has brought about. But we're waiting for his second coming, aren't we? And what's fascinating, again is the language that's picked up at the end of all things. If you write down, you don't have to look there, but just write it down, Hebrews 12, verses 26 and 27. It's said there that the Lord is going to shake the earth one more time. He's going to bring this kind of judgment that that, that was echoed in the Old Covenant one more time. And what is that judgment? It's when the Son comes back and judges both the living and the dead. That's why if you look at Revelation 6 and 11... 
these th- uh, throne room scenes. We have language of, of thunder and, and earthquakes and lightning and fire and hail. All of these things are meant to show us judgment is coming. And Jesus is going to mete out that judgment on all of our enemies. The flesh that remains in us will be eradicated. God's enemies will be destroyed. No more sickness. No more death. No more suffering. And then we will receive glorified, resurrected bodies, even as Jesus himself did when he rose from the dead. And so we are to reflect on this, brothers and sisters. Remember our deliverances. The deliverance we have in Jesus' first coming and the deliverance that we're looking forward to at the second coming, because that is meant to fill our hearts with thankfulness and gratitude, because who's at the heart of all of this? These things are ours, but they've been wrought by the hand of Almighty God Himself. So we've seen that in order to nurture thankfulness in our hearts, we need to remember our delight, we need to remember our deliverances, and let's see, lastly, how we need to remember our righteousness. Look at verses 20 through 28. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules or decrees, just decrees, were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God, lightens my darkness. Wow. So right out of the gate, verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Or look at verse 24. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. What in the world is David saying here? Is this blasphemous? Because it kind of sounds like it to our Protestant ears, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you what David isn't saying. And then I'll tell you what he is saying. He's not saying that he has somehow earned or merited his justification. He's not saying I've somehow earned my right uh, to be able to stand before God and be declared righteous so that I can then live with him forever in eternity in, in, in blessed bliss. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, and he's not saying, um, not just about his justification, but he's also not saying I've somehow by my righteousness and my works put the Lord in my debt so that he now owes it to me, that, that he has to deliver me. So he's not saying, I've somehow justified myself in the sight of God by my own righteousness. And he's also not saying, I've somehow put God in my debt by my righteousness, so that he owes it to me to deliver me from all of my enemies. Instead, what is David saying? He's saying two things. First of all, he's saying, as we looked back, if you remember, at Psalm 17... He's saying, listen, Lord, I'm, I'm innocent of the charges that they're bringing against me. You remember Saul was pursuing him and saying, David's trying to overthrow my rule and reign. He wants to be king, and so I need to pursue him, and I need to kill him. And David had opportunities to kill Saul, didn't he? And he didn't. He walked away from it. He even cuts off a part of Saul's robe to show, look, I could have killed you while you were in this cave, and I didn't. 
And so he's saying, I'm innocent of these charges that they're bringing against me, saying that I am worthy to die because of my guilt. He's saying, I'm innocent of these specific charges, Lord. So that's the first thing he's saying. And the second thing he's saying is he's saying, I've been faithful to the covenant that you've entered into with me, Lord. Not perfectly, but consistently. Your law is before me. You see that in these verses here. I'm meditating on your rules and on your precepts. I remember the covenant you entered into with me, and that motivates me to want to walk in faithfulness with you. And so we see that David loves God's law. We see that in this psalm. We see that in places like Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Because David knows that blessed is the man, Psalm 1 who doesn't sin and rebel against the Lord, but he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. And so he's saying, I've walked in covenant faithfulness with my God. And when I've sinned or strayed, I've repented of it and received forgiveness, and I continue to walk with him. And David understands. Remember, go all the way back to verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. You're the one that gives me the ability to be innocent of these charges and walk in covenant faithfulness with you. Yes, I do it, but you're the one who gives me the will and the desire. And so David is acknowledging this gracious work that the Lord has done in his life. So David's actually being very humble here. He's acknowledging God's glorious, gracious work in his life. And he's not violating verse 27. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. David's not being proud, he's being humbled. He's being humble because he knows that the Lord is the one who has done this. In him. So what about when we look to Christ, when we look to Jesus' life and ministry? Well, without any qualifications or nuances, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, didn't he? Jesus, David consistently walked with the Lord, but he didn't perfectly walk with the Lord. Just go look back at his life. But Jesus perfectly did. And he did that for you and for me. He delighted in the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness. Right? You remember John the Baptist says, Jesus... I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And what is Jesus' response? We need to fulfill, I need to fulfill all righteousness. Why does he need to fulfill all righteousness? For us, because we have no righteousness of our own. And so that's what Jesus does. And because he humbles himself in this way, he is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's what Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 says. Don't turn there, I'll read it to you. But emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself, the son emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus was humble in his dealings with the Father, and so the Father has now exalted him at his right hand, and that's all been done for us and our salvation. So how does this psalm then find voice in our lives? Brothers and sisters, we need to fall on our faces in gratitude, understanding that Jesus was perfectly righteous in this way, so that track record could be given to us. He earned all of that, merited all of those blessings, that right standing before God. David himself knew this. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. That can only be true in the Messiah. And we're looking, David was looking forward to that Messiah. We're looking back on that Messiah. 
And we are, should be filled with wonder on praise that he has reconciled us to God by counting that righteousness as our own. So that when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus, he treats us as he treats his own son. If there's nothing else you get out of this sermon that should move you to thankfulness and gratitude, it's this. That should move us to to wonder, awe, and praise all the days of our lives. But second of all, because of that righteousness, we should then pursue and pray for a clear conscience before God and man. That's what David's saying here. Lord, as my enemies are pursuing me, I've got a clear conscience that I'm innocent of any charges they bring against me. And Lord, I know you're not bringing this to punish me because I'm walking in covenant faithfulness with you. And so, brothers and sisters, that should be our aim. By God's grace, as he's empowering us to walk in accord with his word so that we have, as Paul was able to say before Felix in Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We should have that by his grace and we should pursue that. And we're able to grow in these ways. How are we able to grow in these ways? How are we able to grow in our sanctification and holiness? This psalm answers that question for us. Look at verses 21 through 24. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. What is David doing? He's in the means of grace. He's meditating on God's holy word. He's rejoicing in the gospel. He's praying. He's speaking the law to other believers, other Israelites. And he's worshiping with God's people. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are to be given to. Meditating on the glories of our God as revealed in his word. And and being changed by those, reflecting on the gospel, speaking those truths to each other, coming to corporate worship, feasting at the table with one another and with the Lord. And what's absolutely amazing is that as we do this, the Lord does reward us. Think about this. He graciously gives us the strength to be able to will and to work to be righteous and to have a clear conscience before him and man. And then he, to add grace upon grace, then rewards us graciously. We don't put him in, his, in, his, in our debt so he has to pay us back. He just graciously rewards us on top of that faithfulness that he empowers us to actually do. And so as we wait for Jesus to come back again, because we're living on this side of his first coming and we're waiting for his second coming, look at how he provides for us. He graciously gives us his Holy Spirit and sanctifies us so that we love his word, so that we love his people, and we want to walk in covenant faithfulness as we work out that which he is working in us. So brothers and sisters, we, we need to reflect and remember these realities, remembering our triune God is our delight, remembering how he has delivered us in his son and how that future deliverance is coming when Christ returns. And remember that he so graciously not just saves us, but then also sanctifies us. So that we are able to cry out, Lord, I'm innocent of these charges that are being brought against me. And if we're not innocent, to repent and receive forgiveness in Christ. And to walk in covenant faithfulness with him all the days of our lives. These truths as we reflect on them will cause our hearts to swell 
with thankfulness and with gratitude so that we find ourselves singing along with David and singing along with David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our delight. We do love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And we know that you are worthy of glory and honor and praise because of who you are in and of yourself. And so we worship you and we call upon you and, and we're thankful that as our enemies attacked us and death has pursued us and the enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil surround us, you hear our cries and you've delivered us in Christ and you will come again and finally deal that death blow to our enemies. Jesus, when you return. And so we look forward to that day and we pray that as we look forward to that day, as we wait, that we would live righteous lives by your grace as we meditate on your word and pray and reflect on your gospel and all that it means to be in Christ. And we pray that we would be marked as a humble people, as a thankful people, because that's the only way to be humble is to be thankful and brought very low before you. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness, and we pray that you would empower us to walk in covenant faithfulness with you all the days of our lives, that we might be a grateful and thankful people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.